Hi, I'm Jalen Rose, and welcome to the Renaissance Man Podcast, proudly presented by the New York Post. Next up, we have writer and filmmaker Sasha Jenkins, fresh off releasing a new documentary about the legendary Rick James. We talked about growing up, witnessing the birth of hip-hop, and his new project with Nas, celebrating 50 years of music in the game's biggest genre. Let's go. Hi, I'm Jalen Rose, and welcome to the Renaissance Man Podcast, proudly presented by the New York Post, a show where we cover trends in fashion, entertainment, current events, and everything in between. There's only going to be a matter of time before this starts to be recognized as the soul food for the public. Don't be selfish. Share it. Download the podcast. Give me a five-star rating. This week's theme, Life's Soundtrack. If you love hip-hop, you're going to love this episode. The theme for this week goes way further than music. It's about having your ear to the street and being aware of what's happening right now culturally. Biggie said it best. You remember rapping Duke? Da ha, da ha. You never thought that hip hop would take it this far? A lot of people didn't. I remember when hip hop was called the fad. Now it's a lifestyle. But even if you look outside of hip hop, take, say, punk, for instance. In the late 70s, a lot of people thought it was just noise. We now know it as this revolutionary, iconic period of music and art. But my point is, the next wave of revolutionary and iconic art could be happening right now. So it's important, now more than ever, to really look at independent artists who are going against the grain whose art reflects progressive social commentary and change. Let's give them the bread. Let's put money in their pockets so that 50 years from now, we can look back and say culturally, we pushed the envelope, laid the groundwork for the future generations to build upon. My next guest knows all about that, lives it, eats it, breathes it. He grew up around heroes we consider pioneers of hip-hop and i must just say i'm using the term hip-hop on purpose because it's more than just rap music it's fashion it's graffiti it's djing and through those observations he was able to craft a career that launched marquee hip-hop publications like mass appeal and ego trip he's also a documentarian a musician and coming up we talked to him about working with Nas on a project celebrating 50 years of hip hop up next Sasha Jenkins Welcome to the Renaissance Man Podcast, proudly presented 
by the New York Post. You know what it is. A show where we cover trends in fashion, entertainment, current events, and everything in between. Our next guest is the definition of a renaissance man. He does it all. Writes, directs, produces, and has worked alongside some of the biggest names in music, capturing their lives on camera and in print. His latest documentary, Hip Hop 50. And I feel like a little bit older right now because I am 48 years of age. So this is my entire life. It's a series about the countdown to the 50th anniversary of the biggest genre in music. It's set to premiere on Showtime later this year. Please welcome, and that hat is cold, that we are family Pittsburgh Pirate Willie Starjo rocking Sasha Jenkins to the show. Well, thank you for having me. Um, it's a pleasure to be with. I can't believe uh, this gentleman. I'm having a conversation with him that's being captured. But just to correct you real quick, um, Hip Hop 50 is a program that is going to run until the anniversary of hip hop in 2023. So it's about three years of programming, various films and other projects that we mass appeal are producing, directing, et cetera, et cetera. So Hip Hop 50 isn't a film, it's a program that is gonna encompass lots of films that are inside of what people call the culture. So it's not just break dancing or graffiti, it's, it's dance hall reggae, it's fashion, it's all the things that encompass how we live and express ourselves. But my latest, film, my latest film, to plug that, is called Bitchin', The Sound and Fury of Rick James. And that is premiering mm. Uh, on Showtime in September. And the whole Hip Hop 50 thing is also a part of the Showtime family. I'm gonna shut up now. No, I like where you're going. You just, you just threw me so many lives to start this interview. I'm excited to kick it with you again. And I appreciate you joining the show. So tell us about bitching. Rick James, you know, people have this perception of who he is and some of that perception is probably true, but you know, people didn't know that he went AWOL from the Navy and went to Canada and was in bands with Neil Young and played with Joni Mitchell and all these folks. And someone wound up snitching on him. His manager snitched on him and he got violated and he had to serve time for deserting the military. And then he goes back to Canada and he said, where are all my homeboys? Cause he said that he felt so much racism in America, but he said the white people in Canada were nice. Mm. So he went looking for his nice white friends and they were all gone. He said, where did they go? They all went to California and they all got, record deals like Buffalo Springfield and these other groups. And so he goes out there trying to get on and it doesn't really happen for him. So he winds up, you know, he doesn't really get on until he's late twenties. So he went hard and the way music works now, it's like, if you're not on by the time you're 17, no one's really sticking around until they're 30 to try to make it as a recording artist. Or if they do, it's really difficult. What about how he carved his own lane? I remember being a shorty having two older brothers going downstairs, hearing Mary Jane playing, smelling smoke in the air. They had the police siren lights in the basement. I remember going to school with the roach clip on my pants. Didn't realize what it was. Got in trouble at school. So just talk about the Rick James, the fashion icon, the, the legendary musician, like a lot of things that people may not know about his greatness. Well, you know, Rick, when he started out, he wanted to be a rock star, right? So when you look at the configuration, the full realization of the Rick James persona, 
he took a little from here and a little from there and a little from here. And because he was authentic to rock and roll and authentic to soul and authentic to funk, he was able to create this persona that was contemporary to George Clinton and P-Funk and all those groups, but very unique to himself. I mean, even the braids that he wore, as he says in the film, he was inspired by an African woman who we met on the plane and asked her, like, how do you do that? Can you do that for me? You know, and so he incorporated so many different ideas musically and even the representation of how he looked. And it was all representative of authentic time spent in all these different worlds. And to be a brother at that time who was able to move in so many different circles, that's like being fluent in multiple languages. So he was mm -hmm. linguist on another level. And that's what made him so unique and uh, made him stand out. So, Shasha, where did you grow up and how do you think it influenced your current outlook on music and just in life in general? Well, I grew up initially in Silver Spring, Maryland. You know, my father was a filmmaker and he taught at Howard University and um, my parents split up. So we moved to Queens in 1977 and, you know, single mom situation because my parents split up and we're living, you know, in the hood in Queens. And out my window, there was what we would eventually understand to be hip hop. There were DJs playing loud ass music to, to you know, three, four, five in the morning. And my mom, you know, my dad was African-American and my mom was from Haiti. So, you know, my mom was the Haitian lady who was calling the police on the DJs. Right. Mm. And it turns out those DJs were called the Disco Twins, mm. who are legendary. Right. So I grew up being serenaded by hip hop. But I also understood that my father was a documentary filmmaker. My mom is a painter. So I understand the value of culture. So this thing that became hip hop, when my mom told me to go outside and play in 1977, I had a Nerf football. Mm. Other people had magic markers, people were dancing. And I was like, what is this? And mm. guy gave me a magic marker and he wrote his name on the slide. He's like, this is graffiti. And so because I come from a family who understand culture, this thing that was happening was just, it was natural for me to gravitate to these things. So I became a graffiti writer and uh, eventually in my teens, I'd published a graffiti magazine, which would lead me to publishing a hip hop newspaper called Beatdown, which would lead me to publish a magazine called Ego Trip, which would lead me to write for Vibe and Spin and all these magazines, which led me to be the music editor at Vibe, which led me to write some books, which led me to uh, Viacom optioning one of my books, which was called The Big Book of Racism. That wound up becoming a television show that was about race. And then they said, what do you want to do next? They said, you should do reality. And I said, I have an idea. We should do a show called The White House. We make white rappers move to the South Bronx. They said, that's a great idea. That became the white rapper show. So, you know, my trajectory, you know, here I am about to be 50, hip hop 50, literally. And everything that I've done has been a reflection of my interests as a youth. And so my evolution and hip hop's evolution has been sort of, you know, in, in concert, in sync. And so now hip hop has evolved and matured. And now I see myself as a shepherd, someone who is here to sort of make sure that our stories are told the right way from our perspective, because for so long they weren't told by us. And it makes a huge difference. As a fan supporter of hip hop, and I'm glad you're doing the distinction because KRS-One made sure he let it be known that hip hop is a lifestyle. 
rap, graffiti, DJing. Um, those are the things that embody hip hop, you know, our fashion. And so being a Detroiter, I just always wanted to get a snapshot into the birth of hip hop through breakdancing. And New York City gave me that window watching um, Crush Groove, watching Beat Street. You know, we used to watch that over and over and over again. One of the Pumas wanted to look like Lee. And so this was out of your window. This was this was right in front of you. And so tell me how you fell in love, really, just with, you know, hip hop and some of the things you saw as hip hop started to grow. Well, it's not even falling in love. It's, you know, what I tell people all the time. I don't believe there are genres of music when it comes to black music, because black music and culture is a reflection of and a reaction to pain mm. and oppression, right? Broken glass everywhere. Totally. Like I'm, I'm, you know, I just did Rick James, right? He started running numbers with his mom when he was, you know, eight years old. RZA had the same story. Louis Armstrong, I'm doing a film about him. He caught a gun charge. Louis Armstrong mm. went to reform school because he caught a gun charge. Mm. It's the same guys. Right. And it's the art is a is a way to deal with even if you're happy, even if your music is happy, it's still a reaction to dealing with the oppression that you want to get away from. And you can't be mad all the time. Right. right? So right. my love affair with hip hop was is me just it's very natural. It's my identity. You know, I don't see hip hop as a product. I see it as people. Hip hop is people. Mm -hmm. It's identity. It's how we express ourselves and how we move. And it makes us, it's, it's a metaphor for what became of us when we came to America. We had to work with what we had mm -hmm. to maintain our identity. And what's so great about hip hop, you might not know where your last name comes from in Scotland because you're not Scottish, but in hip hop, in graffiti, you create your own name. Mm -hmm. I'm going to be so-and-so 142 and mm -hmm. people are going to know me and I'm going to be distinctive. And you're going to be able to see something that I painted that doesn't even say my name and you're going to know it's me because mm -hmm. I want to be somebody. And that's all hip hop is. It's us people saying we are somebody. Look at us. We we're valuable. We, we should be valued. And if you're not going to value us, we're going to value each other. And then eventually what happens is they start to value what it is that we create and then they want to make money off of it. For me, it's interesting because I don't know if you're familiar with a group called Super Lovacy and Casanova Rudd. Yes, indeed. I grew up with them. Right. And so, super love, super love. So, you know, you go from playing football with somebody to, you know, you're barely a teenager, and it's like, yo, I know him, mm. right? I know him. He's not just famous in my neighborhood anymore. People know him all over, all over the world, and he made a great song. They they made a great song, right? Mm. So, it's just weird, like so many weird coincidences. Like Marley Marl told me. Mm. I'm from Astoria and there's Queensbridge. I grew up across the street from the Astoria Project, but it's the same thing. So Marley Marl told me that the first song he ever made was recorded in my building because there was a jazz musician who had a four track. And when he told me that, I was just like, I tell Nas all the time, like, yeah, whatever. Marley made his first song in my building. And so then you think about me and Nas went to junior high, same junior high. I didn't know him then. Really? Yeah. And he wasn't there very long. He dropped out early. And um, Havoc from Mob Deep, I know him from writing graffiti. I went to go write graffiti with a friend of mine from Queensbridge. 
And he introduced me to this kid named Nal. N-A-L was his tag. Mm -hmm. And next thing you know, we're riding on trains. So I know Havoc. So all of this stuff, interestingly enough, I just naturally, just by being curious, being um, uh, adventurous in some ways, you know, going to where they parked the trains and climbing on stuff and networking at a time when there was no internet. Unless you were an athlete, and maybe this was this way in Detroit, in New York, if you weren't an athlete, you didn't leave your neighborhood. Mm-hmm. So you didn't know the white kid from the Upper East Side or the Puerto Rican kid from the Lower East Side. And what graffiti did yeah. was it got you meeting kids from lots of different economic strata, different races, different cultures. So I became in the same way that Rick James became fluent in many languages. I became fluent in that I was able to connect with lots of different people before the Internet. Now you can just learn about things on the internet. Back then you had to uh, be a participant. And I feel it's important if you're documenting something, you've got to really understand it from the ground up. And I'm always interested in participation. I must ask a couple of graffiti questions. Obviously we don't want to incriminate nobody. We want to make sure everybody still get their tags. But I remember watching Beat Street and I use this all of the time. The white one. Right. And I, I, I relate that to things in my life that all of a sudden it becomes a blank canvas the way he saw the train right. as the blank canvas. So I go to bed at night, right? And there's a white train. All of a sudden I wake up in the morning. It has an amazing tag on it. So what's that process? How much time does it take? How much creativity does it take? How much practice does it take before you actually put it on the train? Well, to give you, well, how that film was mirroring life. Around the time of the film, around 1984, the MTA was starting to finally win its war against graffiti, which started in about 1972, right? They, they, they just couldn't keep up with these kids. So they, one by one, train line by train line, they started painting the trains white. So it was sort of like a badge of honor at a certain point to get a white train. But at a certain point, they policed the yards much better. They put up barbed wire fences. So it was m- way more difficult to get a white train. So that was kind of real. Interestingly enough, the people who painted the trains in Beach Street were union painters. They weren't graffiti artists. They had to hire union people. Raymond! Right. That's why the graffiti in that film is corny. You got to watch Wild Style and Style Wars. Mm-hmm. That's where you get the mm-hmm. authenticity. But, you know, you have to factor in you're going somewhere you don't belong, right? You might be going to Brooklyn and you're from the Bronx. You got to deal with locals who don't like outsiders coming to their territory. So you can get beat up. Mm-hmm. Get your paint stolen. Mm-hmm. You got to climb. You got to steal your paint because you had you couldn't buy it. It was all about stealing paint. So you go from a drawing in a book to wanting to realize it, to going to the hardware stores and stealing paint, to sneaking out. You know, maybe your mom's not going to let you out to going to foreign territory where anything can happen to you. Then you got to step over the third rail, which can electrocute you. And mm-hmm. then you have X amount of time before the train pulls out. You don't know if the cops are coming, if transit workers are going to show up and beat your ass. You don't know what's going to happen. So it's almost like a video game. Mm. And that was the, the thrill of doing these things was a big part of it. If there was no risk in doing graffiti, you would have some artists who want to express themselves. But when you're young, that thrill and that exhilaration is a big part of it. But some people might spend eight hours on, on a piece, which is shorthand for masterpiece. 
or someone might spend two hours. It all varies. It depends on how many cans of paint you're using. Sometimes people had help. So one guy sort of mapped it out and then others kind of followed it and helped get it done. So there's lots of different ways to get it done. It depends on how many people are involved and how ambitious you are, but there are a lot of risk factors involved. Well, your work, as we mentioned, isn't limited to hip hop. You've written for Rolling Stone and Spin Magazine, and you're in a rock band. Busy guy. The, rappers Mer the rapper Murs is the front man, and you are all joined by the legendary bad brain bassist, Daryl Jennifer. What instrument do you play, and how do you guys form as a group? Well, I mainly play guitar. That band is called the White Man Dingoes. We put out a record some years ago. We haven't played as a band in a while. I'm in another band called the 1865. Mm. But the White Man Dingoes, you know, Murs is a great MC, And he's another guy who has a great command of the language culturally in terms of knowing how to relate to lots of different people. And I personally hate rap rock. I think rap rock is garbage. But I wanted to do something that kind of touched on all my interests, including hip hop. And I believe Murs, you know, as a vocalist, did something that was true to hip hop, that is authentic to rock and roll. And we created something that I think, you know, that I'm still proud of today for what it's worth. And White Man Dingoes on all the platforms that you might listen to music. But also my new band is called The 1865 and we're all black punk band, I guess, and we're called the 1865 for obvious reasons. I mean, a lot changed in this country for us in 1865, and we find out in 2021, not much has changed, and we're dealing with the same issues from 1865. So I don't know. I like to be able to express myself. I love playing guitar, and rock and roll is our birthright. We invented it. You know, I don't know what happened in the 70s where they tricked people into thinking that rock and roll was white boy music. I mean, where did Elvis learn how to swing his hips? Like we created this. So mm. I, I, I think it's a it's an ancient music at this point, but I, it's important to play it and represent it and keep it going. And hopefully more and more young people catch on to it. Shout to Chuck Berry. By the way, you just said something. Being from Queens, I have to follow up and ask. I'm sitting here right now with a doll hat on because of Run DMC. I wanted to always dress like this in the 80s. We both rock in Kazell's. You just said you hate rap rock. Run now, DMC doesn't count. They're, 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 the, they're the originators. I'm saying the stuff that's come out like Limp Biscuit and. Got you. Got you. Got you. I, don't know, I just wanted to give you a chance to clarify that. Please continue. Yes. Not Run DMC, Limp Biscuit. I mean, God bless Limp Biscuit. It doesn't matter that I'm not into it, but a lot of people are, and that's great. But in terms of being an authentic MC who knows how to ride the beat and represent both cultures, to me, Murs is the best to do it. I ain't mad at that. So let's talk about fashion for a minute. You made a documentary about the history of hip hop fashion. And this was dope because I've seen it called Fresh Dress. But I'm curious yes. about your personal interest in fashion. Are you a sneaker guy? Do you collect fitteds? I don't. I mean, I have a lot of sneakers, but I, you know, you get to a point where you can't wear them all. I wind up being a creature of habit and wearing the same couple of pairs. So it's like, mm -hmm. there are people in the world who need shoes, you know? Mm -hmm. So why am I going to be a hoarder of shoes? And what's crazy to me, and it brings it back to hip hop. My thing was with my mom, who didn't have a lot of money. My thing was get me three pairs of kicks per semester and I can switch them up. Mm -hmm. Get a suede pair of Pumas, some shell toes mm -hmm. and something else, right? 
Mm-hmm. And I could switch it up. And she wasn't paying more than 40 bucks a pair, you know, 50 bucks, whatever, right? Mm-hmm. I was good. The fact that these kids wait online or have people wait online for them and they're, they're trading sneakers like it's Wall Street, to me is blasphemous, especially when you consider that no white people, and I'm not generalizing, but white people of means did not consider sneakers an item of value. It was right. an item of utility. You wore sneakers to play tennis and you mm-hmm. didn't care about if they got beat up. Mm-hmm. You understand that you didn't have a lot of money. You had Correct. to clean your kicks. Toothbrush. You know, so all of a sudden now the sneaker culture, which there are people who have no connection to hip hop, but love sneakers and that's fine. But that whole value system assigned to shoes comes from us. And the question becomes, what do we get for that? Mm. Say what you want about Starberry and he went to China and he made these shoes that were affordable and maybe they weren't the best, but he had the right idea. Mm-hmm. We need to yeah, he did. control, be in control of the, the manifestation of our sensibilities that were once sort of looked at, looked down upon, which rule the world. Bon Jovi, he was the man. God bless Bon Jovi. No one cares about rock and roll. Mm-hmm. No matter what color you are. Right now, it's hip hop. Hip hop mm-hmm. moves the world. And how is hip hop, the people who created it, what are we getting in exchange for all that we've given to the world? Mm. I'm glad you went there. I want to follow up to that, please, sir, if you don't mind. Of course. Because I, in high school, I had a chance to learn Spanish. And I remember being so ignorant saying, I don't need to learn Spanish. I ain't never going to Spain. But now doing what I do for a living, if I can speak another language, it'll be over. Right. But to now learn it, I have to pay someone to teach me how to do it. To your point, hip hop seems to be able to get cherry picked for free. So what do you think about the hip hop that you grew up loving, living, and now you seeing like the rap rock groups that you're not necessarily a fan of or rap music becomes so very mainstream that you don't necessarily recognize it? You know, what do you think about the evolution? I mean, I think the evolution is only natural because... Again, I, I got into rock music too, right? So there's a punk rock scene in New York and there were a few people of color on it and I was one of them. And there's a universal power around music, right? You think about slam dancing, right? And I remember going to my first punk rock show, literally these white dudes were throwing White Castle hamburgers, right? <laughs> they were throwing hamburgers. And I said to my man, who was a brother, I was like, yo, what kind of, they throwing hamburgers? That's mad disrespectful, right? People need to eat. This is crazy. This is wild, right? But I kept going. And I, what I learned in my old age is that it was therapeutic therapy for white kids. Think about the fact that you go and see a concert and you get so worked up that you're jumping off the stage and people are catching you. You're bumping into people. It looks like you're fighting. And at the end, you have that, that, that like you went swimming for two hours and you feel tired, but you feel exhilarated. Mm-hmm. Yo, that's therapeutic. Now, can you imagine if there were clubs around America that allowed an all black audience of black young black males to get together and do that? 
Not going to be able happen. to do it. But guess what? If they were able to do that and walk away without violence, hmm. to have this choreographed scene, scene of violence that was more physical in the way that you play ball when you get out of that, mm-hmm. how would we have benefited and I have been, I'm telling you that I studied it and I was like, yo, I see what this is. I'm benefiting from it. Absolutely. It's been a great release, so, like sports and activities. Right. So the universal thing, whether it's punk rock, hip hop, house music, your city, techno, very important when it comes to techno. People don't want to talk about that, but like so much music has come out of your city. It's this, it's a music is a spiritual exercise. And when everyone is in sync and in rhythm, it goes beyond the dance floor. Everyone elevates and rises, you know? And so I had the benefit of experiencing all of that with music and learning that bouncing from culture to culture and organ, you know, idea to idea and people to people, it's all the same thing. It's just a different expression. The white kid who likes heavy metal likes his boombox and beer and girls, and the hip hop kid is the same kid. Mm-hmm. Well said. Lastly, one of the people that have also been on the show, Nasir Jones, the legend, Nas. Yeah. So tell us more about Hip Hop 50 because he's been involved with that project with you as well. Well, for me, it's so crazy because, you know, we're partners in the business and, you know, Ego Trip was a magazine I started publishing with some folks in 94 and he was the first cover. Mm. Um and then when I became a partner at Mass Appeal magazine years, you know, 20 some years ago, he was the first cover with Large Professor. So we have some things in common. Like we both grew up in the hood. We both went to the same junior high. His dad was a musician. My dad was a filmmaker. And so in some ways I've told him, you know, as he knows, we grew up, I grew up with people better looking than me, smarter than me, more creative than me. That's but they the right crowd. They didn't have the um, the advantages, the cultural advantages that he had and I had. You know, we both knew that our, our families put a lot of value on a culture. So, man, for me, it's just, you know, when we talk about this and people don't understand, like, do you know how many, how much pressure a guy like that has or an athlete has who comes from the hood? All the people that you have to carry for years and the guilt that you feel. Mm-hmm. I mean, just being able to survive that is a win right yes so i know a lot of the people he knew and people have passed away and all the stress and drama and seeing his evolution seeing his success and being able to say to him yo man you know what i'm happy for you Mm -hmm. like i'm proud of you like maybe i'll never have as much money as you but i see your success as my success we went to the same crappy school that's right his, his guidance counselor told him the same thing you should go to vocational school what if Nas went to vocational school? I mean, okay, maybe he'd be fixing refrigerators and we need people to do that. And that's a good solid skill. But his real calling was poetry. Yeah. And to see how this guy from my neighborhood, essentially went to the same crappy school, how his words can inspire and influence. I'm in, I'm in Paris and I'm in a cafe and I'm hearing Illmatic. Mm. You know, to, to know where it came from and where it's gone, it's really inspiring. So. You know, for me to be partners with him and, and working on all these projects with him, it's really, you know, I'm very happy about it. And I think that, um, you know, he's transitioning into directing, you know, so he's going to be directing a film about Ralph McDaniels, a.k.a. the host of Video Music Box, which is mm-hmm. 
the longest running video show in the world. And Ralph has an amazing story and has broken so many artists on the air. Mm -hmm. um, so I don't know. It's he he's a creative guy. And together we have the ability to be creative together and, and give opportunities to other people to be creative. And it's all within this, this, this idea, hip hop, which was just something we did as kids. I mean, he said to me the other day, I thought I would make Illmatic and that would be it. Mm. And I was like, well, what else were you going to do? He's like, I don't know. I was interested in painting. You know, I don't know. I was going to get a job. Like he thought that getting on video music box and putting out that, that one album and that would have been it he would have been a ghetto celebrity and that would have been it and look at where he is absolutely what a legend and i again appreciate you taking your time but before i let you get out of here sasha jenkins yes. we gotta do one thing i have a rapid fire segment called gone in 60 seconds you ready to do this sure so i just have to say a word no you just say a word a phrase it might be a paragraph it's still rapid fire though all right here we go. Three, two, one. So you mentioned a lot of notable artists and human beings walking the face of this earth that are really talented. I heard Louis Armstrong's name. I heard Rick James name. But if you had to write or direct the biopic of any musician, who would it be? Jimi Hendrix. Legend. I was going to say David Ruffin. That's my guy. Name an artist of the last five years who you just been blown away by. Ooh, Kendrick Lamar. Absolutely, really selective. I love that about him. What's a bigger relief, finishing a book or wrapping up a film? Finishing a book, much harder. Much harder. Got a lot and of help making the film. Well said, well said. And last but certainly not least, and this is a list, so take your time. You're from Queens. You're a connoisseur. I don't want you to leave somebody off the list. Who's in your top five greatest rappers, rappers, rappers of all time? Yeah, I mean, I like Ghostface. Me too. Shay I hear, Shay. Mm. I hear something. If you listen to Ghostface, you hear something different every time in the same lyrics. So it's like he unlocks, if you, it's, I don't understand his brain, but I don't, it doesn't matter. It, it's, a, he's, Ghostface is one of my favorites. Iron Eagle, that makes me so happy that you mentioned him. Yeah, I think G-Rap, mm. pioneer, who doesn't really get what he deserves. Um, if you go back and listen to those, to those records, You'll hear how he's influenced a lot of people and mm -hmm. no one's really been able to do it like him since. Um, Agree. Streets of New York. I was just listening to that song, him and Nas recently. Ill. Yeah, I mean, Nas is one, you know, I just, maybe I know too much about him, but he's got lines that are really, I, call, he, I heard something that was probably a couple of years old. I was somehow listening to, I have serious radio and then somehow it conked out. I was listening to the regular radio and I hit him up about a song that I heard on the radio where he said something about the smell of New York city, hot cheese pizza burning the roof of his mouth. <laughs> and I texted him. I was like, yo, that new thing. And he's like, yo, that song's kind of old. And I was like, oh, all right. <laughs> the, the thing that's great about Nas is, He's got had he's had incredible albums. He's had albums that aren't as incredible. 
And I think the mark of a true artist is someone who takes chances, mm -hmm. who might listen to someone or listen to himself and want to do something, and is able to come back and have a really broad um, palette of work. You know, one of my favorite artists is Neil Young. Neil Young has albums that are phenomenal and albums that are trash, but he's a real artist and you support real artists because their music is a reflection of where they were in their lives at that time. And maybe they're having a bad time and the music was whack. But um, that's like three people, I think. Ghostface, G-Rap, Nas, two more. Um, can I throw a group in there? Of course you can. Greatest rap group of all time is Outkast. Mm. I ain't mad at that. When I heard their first album, I was trying to get the Freak Nick. Who has a more consistent body of work in terms of albums? Mm. Consistency. I'm not and saying with one, Diamond too. They went. I'm not saying DMC is not great. I'm not saying Wu Tang isn't great. Wu Tang is probably the number co number one. But like in terms of a body of work that's consistent, Outcast mm -hmm. hands down. And then I guess I can end with Wu Tang, right? Yes. And there are you know obviously there are women. There are other people who are great. But you you asked me to name my top favorite. And those Absolutely. are probably my top five. I don't think too many people can argue with your top five, my brother. And yeah, I appreciate you, you taking the time. Well, well, you didn't say Jay. So what about that? Is, 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 is this a Queens, Brooklyn thing? Like, you didn't say Jay. You know what? Jay is, I think Nas is a great poet. And I think Jay-Z is a very consistent songwriter. I think he's a phenomenal song. He's like a great songwriter. And, and I think sometimes his stuff, he's real cocky, you know, and hip hop is about being cocky. But what's interesting about Jay and what I appreciate, appreciate about him, he had that song, I Had to Make the Song Cry. Yeah. And see it come from my eyes. Mm -hmm. I always hated that song because I thought it was a bad message to send. And he recently talked about how he's evolved and changed and, and, and talked about that. So I have a lot of respect for him for sort of acknowledging his own evolution as an artist and as a man. And we in hip hop don't always have the opportunity to address that evolution or people don't wanna hear that from us. And I'm very pleased to see, not that me being pleased means anything, but seeing Jay and Nas being friends and like mm -hmm. being leaders in business, yes. and having a platform and saying something. So. Jay didn't make my top five, but doesn't mean he's not one of the most important people in the culture and is someone who is shifting culture in general. And if it wasn't for Jay-Z, I want to thank him publicly. My film Fresh Dressed wouldn't have happened because it started out as a commercial for Rock Aware that was going to be an infomercial on BET. And I met with Jay-Z and he, he, I said, you should do a film about hip hop fashion. Why do you want to do a commercial? And then Rock Aware can be in a part of the story and we can tell a bigger story. That's a better look. And he's like, that's a great idea. And then he got new management, everything changed. We sold the film and then it went to Sundance and someone on his team said, I'm about to call Jay and tell him how great this movie is. I'm like, yo, tell your man that he should have been an pro executive producer, but thank him, please. So mm -hmm. I might be from Queens, but I have a lot of respect and I'm very grateful for Jay-Z because I, I might not be where I'm at if he didn't, give me an opportunity so hip-hop full circle for me full circle for me too because i'm a member of the rock nation family and they hooked me up with the new york post and they're the reason why we're doing this renaissance man podcast 
so we all can eat together, my brother. All right. Last call. Last call. I'd like to personally thank Sasha Jenkins for stopping by the podcast. This man finishes a project and goes on to the next, on, on to the next, without even taking in all of the critical acclaim that it's receiving. You can sleep when you die, I guess. But for real, though, sleep is actually important. So is getting vaccinated. So make sure you do that as well. But before I let you go, I want to tell you my personal biggest takeaway from this episode. That hip-hop is 50. It's middle-aged and growing. And while we have titans like Drake and Meg Thee Stallion, Griselda, who are really pushing hip-hop forward, I want to personally give a shout to my favorite legends of hip-hop. First off, I want to thank the Sugar Hill Gang. Groups like Run DMC, LL Cool J, Big Daddy Kane, Rakim, Tupac Shakur, Biggie Smalls, Jay-Z, Nas. Shout out to my guy Jay Dilla, rest in peace, representing Detroit to the folks. Shout out to the ladies, Dej Loaf, Salt Pepper, Queen Latifah, Rhapsody, Cash Dial. Like the game is so very prosperous and popular. I'm so very fortunate as I watch hip-hop grow that it's become the soundtrack to my life. And I want to thank each of the people that I named. And every time I do a list, I'm going to forget some people because I'm off the dome. Jay-Z doing one take. I'm doing one take. And for those listening to this show right now, make sure we show love to our OGs. While they're still with us. I'm the Renaissance Man. See you next week.